You are listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Hey, y'all, and welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie, and today I'm going to be answering a listener question. That's right. I get questions from you guys quite a bit, and I really appreciate it. And sometimes what I do is I'll direct you to a previous episode that may have answered these questions. But I thought today this is a good question to kind of address again from maybe a different angle. And for those of you who don't want to be sent back <laughs> to previous episodes, then I'm going to read this question that I got from Lauren K on Instagram. So she DM'd me and she said, Hi, Rick, I take my CPT, CPT test soon and I'm having a hard time with altered reciprocal inhibition and synergistic dominance. Can you explain a little? Love the podcast. Well, thank you, Lauren, and thank you for asking the questions. And yeah, let's talk about altered reciprocal inhibition and let's talk about synergistic dominance. So First of all, reciprocal inhibition. Reciprocal inhibition is a normal thing. So it's when it gets altered that that becomes problematic. So I want you to think about it. Let's start with the bicep because that's easy to see on yourself or if you're watching the video of this on uh, YouTube or the NASM Facebook page, then you can see what's going on. So the bicep has two joint actions, right? So it does flexion at the elbow and it supinates. And you can kind of see, you have to look hard because my muscles aren't that big, right? So as you supinate, you see how my muscle in the bicep shortens. As I flex, the muscle shortens more, right? So in order for me, I can still hold that position. And then as soon as I turn my wrist into pronation, you see the belly of that muscle, the belly of the bicep drop or lengthen instead of shorten. So what that is, is that any time you move a muscle out of one of its primary joint actions that it does, you are inhibiting that muscle. So if I go by elbow flexion and supination and pronate, supinate, pronate, and you see the muscle change directions, that's normal. That's normal. So I can, I can supinate and maybe I can get my biceps a little bit more if I'm doing bicep curls. But if I decide I want to get some of the other muscles in my, in my arm, if I want to address them more, then maybe I go into a neutral grip and I get out of that supination. I lengthen the bicep and now some of the other muscles can jump in and go, oh, oh, let me, let me get in there. So the, the brachialis will jump in there a little bit more and the brachioradialis will be like, oh, okay, now I can get in there a little bit more. And then I can pronate my grip and same thing. So I'm inhibiting, I'm reciprocally inhibiting. So it doesn't always mean necessarily exactly on the other side. It means the opposing joint action, but let's keep it ideally on what muscles on the other side. So let's think about this in terms of recip altered reciprocal inhibition, because this is normal inhibition where joint actions take place. Altered reciprocal inhibition is when I have something like, let's go with hip flexors, because I think this is, this is a really, really good concept that we need to get down. Is that I'm sitting in a chair all day long, or your clients sitting in chairs all day long, and they're in a hip flexed position. So they get into this, what we call 
adaptive shortening position. So you just put a muscle in a position, you keep it there all day long, it likes to stay there. So the glutes are in a lengthened position, the hip flexors are in a shortened position. Well now, when I go to stand up, the mechanoreceptors there, like the muscle spindle, when we go into a stretch, short muscles don't like to be stretched. So as soon as you take a muscle that doesn't like to be stretched and you start to stretch it, then they uh, activate. So as we start to lengthen that muscle, then the, the muscle itself says, I don't like this, let's contract. Well, when my hip flexors contract, this is the point when it comes to reciprocal inhibition. When my hip flexors contract, my hip extensors become reciprocally inhibited. Think about if you remember things like mathematics and fractions when you were in, I don't know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade or not. Uh, but in order to get out of a fraction, you have to get the reciprocal. You have to flip it. So you got to go flip to the other side. That's the reciprocal, the one on the other side. And so I've got my hip flexor short, tight, overactive, my hip extensors when they try to shorten as I stand up and my glutes start to shorten, the hip flexors are now being lengthened. They don't like being lengthened, they activate. And because of that activation on the front of the body, there is a neurological decrease in activation to the posterior side. That is going to be altered reciprocal inhibition. With that, you probably should also be a little bit familiar with something called the length tension relationship. And a length tension relationship states that a muscle in its optimal length will perform at its optimal strength. And if you're in a seated position, you most certainly are not in an optimal length to produce optimal force. And if we're stuck in that position, then my length tension relationship start, starts to be altered. So uh, I'm going to give uh, another visual for those of you that are watching. For those of you that are not, you can just kind of imagine what's going on. But if I take my fingertips and I put put it on my elbow on the other side, and then I take the same arm. I, so I'm fingertips to elbows, both arms, fingertips to elbows. All right. So my right hand is touching my left elbow. My left hand is touching my right elbow. So think about this as the sarcomere. The sarcomere is Z-line to Z-line. It's the functional unit of a muscle cell. And that's where contraction takes place. Well, we have these two uh, proteins. We have actin and we have myosin. Myosin is the thick protein, actin is the thin protein. And if this is representing it, then what happens is that these muscles in the sliding filament theory, they slide over each other. So the ideal place from them to fire from would be where they completely overlap with each other. So the cross bridges that take place that, that allow the actin to slide over the myosin, it, it can get full cross bridges. They can all connect. But if I'm too lengthened, then I only have a certain number of cross bridges that can take place. So now instead of fingertips to elbows on each hand, I'm now fingertip to wrist on each hand. Well, only those cross bridges are going to be allowed to connect and ratchet. So I'm, as it shortens, I'm getting stronger. But what if it gets too short? What if I'm firing from a shortened position? So now I'm almost touching elbow to elbow. 
if those cross bridges, is, if that's all that they can cross bridge right there, then they're at a weakened state as well. So there is a connection between the link tension relationship and reciprocal inhibition, because if I'm short on one side, I'm lengthened on the other side, and both sides are relatively weak than what they should be because they're not in their ideal place in order to produce force. Now, if I'm neurologically more active on one side, then I will be neurologically limited or reciprocally inhibited on the other side. All right, so let's keep with this idea then of reciprocal inhibition at the hip flexors and the glutes. So if I'm reciprocally inhibited and my glutes are not firing the way that they need to, that's my primary muscle when it comes to hip extension. So if they're not firing, other muscles are going to be like, hey, we still got to stand up, right? So what are we going to do? We've got to help the glutes out. So I like to think of it like glutes. The, the glutes are big muscles. They are, if, if you were to do a biopsy of the glutes, that would be the largest cross-section of muscle fiber in the body. Well, if we're taking that out, we're taking a very valuable player, an MVP out of the game. So let's think about, let's just use the, the guy that's at the top of the NBA right now, LeBron James. Your glutes are LeBron. But in, th but, <laughs> but in this example we can't substitute somebody else. We can't take one glute out and put another glute in. So LeBron's just playing tired. Maybe he's a little sick. And the other guys on the team still want to win. So what do they have to do? Well, the other players on the team, like the hamstrings, the semi-sisters, semi-membranosis, semi-tendinosis, and then the biceps femoris, those three hamstring muscles, they're going to say, hey, we still, we're going we're gonna to have to pick up our game. We're going to have to play harder because the glutes, LeBron, is out. We got to play harder. Well, there's also the posterior fibers of the adductor magnus. If you've ever done a leg day and you felt sore on the back inner side of the thigh, and maybe you thought it was your hamstrings, but you stretched your hamstrings and you didn't feel it anymore, that's because it's your adductor magnus. So I've got my adductor magnus that's also posterior fibers going to help with hip extension. And then sometimes when hip extension doesn't work, we do back extension to make up for it. So our spinal erectors can be part of that process as well. So I've got my three hamstring muscles and I've got my glute, uh, my um, posterior fibers of the adductor magnus and even my erectors in the spine, uh, most of which are helping with hip extension. And then one kind of assisting with a little cheat to get some spinal extension to help us raise up a little bit higher. Now, with that being said, if the glutes aren't firing and, or I mean, they are, they are firing. It's not like they've just stopped working completely, but they're being reciprocally inhibited. So now all the synergist, the synergist are muscles that work along with a prime mover. It is the synergists that work along with the agonist. Remember that word from your human movement science course. The agonist, the primary mover, is not working. So the synergists now become dominant. The synergists take over the movement and they say, hey, um, big guy's not playing, so we're going to have to jump in and help out. Well, the problem when that happens is that when the hamstrings and 
adductor magnus and those guys start to jump in, sometimes the glutes are like, oh my gosh, thank you. Let me back off even more because you got it. And then the hamstrings and the adductor magnus are like, oh my goodness, they backed off. We're going to have to pick up our game a little bit more. And everybody, and we're playing the game. Everybody wants to win. So what do they do? They work harder. They work harder. And when you work harder, what happens? Yeah, you get fatigued. You get tired. And so as these muscles are continuing to work and they're continuing to get fatigued and we continue to press them and the glutes continue to back off, then we increase our strength in those muscles but we also increase our propensity for injury. And a lot of times we'll see people that fall into this category have some biceps femoris strains. And the reason that that happens sometimes is because the biceps femoris is the most like the glute of any muscle in the body. Why? Because they both do hip extension. They both do hip abduction. They both do hip external or lateral rotation. They do all those things. But the hamstrings, especially biceps femoris, well, not especially, but the biceps fem has many other joint actions that it does. Because at the knee, it's also working to flex the knee. It can also laterally rotate the knee. So with that being said, it's doing all the work that the glute should be doing at the hip. And it's synergistically supporting that process while at the same time being a primary mover of what's going on at the knee. And it's not just about concentric actions. So now it has to decelerate all of this additional force, including gait, including things, especially like running. So when we start to increase the activity of what we're doing and the dynamics of what we're doing, those muscles have to work more dynamically. They have to work harder and they get more and more fatigued, neurologically and mechanically fatigued. And then what happens? Potential injury. So why do we make such a big deal about glute activation and even core activation? Because core supports everything that the body does in the extremities and it supports the core. But the glutes are wildly important when it comes to movement at the hips. And it's a big muscle. And sometimes it just doesn't work. Even if it's big. Even if you see somebody with well-developed, well-hypertrophied glutes, it doesn't mean that their glutes are necessarily firing. So what I like to do, I like to have people do a hip bridge on the floor. So a floor bridge, bridging the hips up, it does two things. One, it is going to stretch the hip flexors. It is an active stretch for your hip flexors. So it can stretch the iliacus, the psoas major, the rectus fem, which can become quite tight and it's particularly shortened in a floor bridge. And in order to get more stretch, you move the feet closer to the bum. And then as they're bridging up, keeping a straight line from their shoulders to as they bridge up their hips and to their knees, and that straight line is important because sometimes people will bridge high because they think that's what you want as the trainer. And it's important to let people know that what you want so that when they lift up, they're not going into a big arch in their lumbar spine. Just a straight line from shoulders and knees to hips. And then ask them where they feel it. 
And I've told this story before. I used to say to clients, so you feel that in your glutes or your hamstrings, glutes or your hamstrings. And they would uh, they would tease out from me what it is, I, where it is I wanted them to feel it. And I would say, glutes, do you feel that more in your glutes? Or do you feel that more in your hamstrings? Glutes? And they would say, glutes. And I would say, glutes, yeah, good. And they would say, hamstrings? I was like, oh, no. And they're like, no, no, I mean glutes. I'm like, oh, good, good, glutes, yeah. And then I was training a guy in like six months, six months, six weeks after starting training him. He said, uh, you ask this question almost every day, and I always say glutes, but I feel really bad now because I don't know what the glutes are. And I was like, oh, <laughs> uh, that was my assumption and my fault. You should have said something, but it was my fault for not clarifying. So I will say I will touch my glutes. We'll give a little pat on my backside. And I say, do you feel it more in the glutes, the backside? Uh, the bum, or do you feel it more in the hamstring, which is the back part of the thigh? Now, if they feel it more in the hamstrings, that's synergistic dominance. Those are the hamstrings that are jumping in going, don't worry about it, glutes, we got it. And your glutes are happy for it. They're happy for it. You got it. I don't have to work. I'm fine. You're fine, but they're not fine. So what we're going to do so we're going to scoot the feet back a little closer to the bum as long as your heels are under your knees. They're not too far back. No pressure on the knees. They should not feel pressure on the knees. And you're going to work on getting that anterior stretch on the front of the thigh while at the same time activating the posterior, specifically and namely the glutes. And why is it that they don't feel the hamstrings? as much when we bring the feet closer to the bum. Well, it has to do with length tension relationships. That if we shorten the hamstring so much, they become slack and it's more difficult for those muscles to fire in that position, but it is easier for the glutes to fire in that position. So we bend the knees a little bit more. We allow the muscle and the hamstring to be shortened and allow the glutes to fire a little bit better. So with that being said, we've gone through reciprocal inhibition and synergistic dominance. Again, reciprocal inhibition, the muscle on one side being overactive causes the muscle on the other side to be underactive. And we gave the example of the hip flexors reciprocally inhibiting the gluteus maximus. We also talked about synergistic dominance kept with the same one where the gluteus maximus it should be the primary mover, but what happens is that these synergists, like the hamstrings, the posterior fibers, the adductor magnus, even the spinal erectors, start to take over when it comes to hip extension exercises because the glutes are not doing their job. So the synergists do the job for them. And so that is what synergistic dominance is. It's all the helper muscles. They are no longer helpers. They now become the agonist, not not purposefully, right? So it should still be the glute primary mover or your agonist in the majority of those movements in hip extension, but the synergists start to take over. So I hope that y'all found that helpful. And I want to shout out to Lauren again. Lauren Kay, thank you so much for submitting that question. And I know you have an upcoming test and I hope that this was very beneficial. It helped you to understand it a little bit. It was 20 minutes of me talking about something where you could have been like, hey, if you just give me the answer, then uh, we don't have to go through all this. The answer is D.
I'm just kidding. I have no idea. Good luck on your exam, Lauren. Thank you so much for listening. If you all have questions you want to ask me, and maybe we'll do a, a listener question answer. I feel like I said that incorrectly, but we're going to answer listeners' questions. So feel free to DM me. You can do that on Instagram, where I'm most active, at dr.rickrichie, R-I-C-H-E-Y. Or you can email me at rick.richie at nasm.org. This has been the NASM CPT Podcast. <laughs>